Good morning, Grace. Yeah. If you would open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 14, and there are also some notes that you can follow in the bulletin if you want to follow along with those. I want to make three simple points uh, for us this morning. As we've been singing, hopefully it is obvious that our desire here is to exalt, exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. And even as we were singing about who he is and how he is to be exalted, I found going through my mind, Lord, that's all I want to do in this sermon. As we open up your word, I just want to continue to exalt Jesus. And there's a reason for that. As we even gather here and we open up our Bibles, the reason we're here today is because we want to be stimulated to continue to exalt Jesus Christ in our lives And so my prayer is that as we look at Genesis 14, he will be exalted. And as you receive the teaching from Genesis 14, we all leave here today exalting him more and more. So let's pray to that end. Lord, we exalt you. And we pray this morning that as we work our way through this story in Genesis that you've preserved for us to teach us We pray that you will be exalted in this story. We pray that as each one of us receives this word, that in our hearts you will be exalted, Lord. We pray that our response to this message as we go our separate ways, that you will be exalted, Lord. So we give this time to you. We give our hearts to you. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would move and each and every one of us to accomplish the work that you want to accomplish. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a word about Esther, who we just prayed for. Been in correspondence with her lately, and she really puts in some long days. She's working hard. It takes a toll on her body where she is in Southeast Asia. But I've been trying to encourage her. Because just this past week, last Wednesday through Sunday, I was in Berlin and I was at what's called the Middle East Summit. And this, was a, this is a group of businessmen. I love businessmen. They do such a good job with whatever they do. But it's a gathering of businessmen and they were formed because they were concerned that when they heard the, the, the fact that only 5% of missions dollars actually goes to the unreached, least reached people of the world... And they said, we're going to do something about that. So they started pooling their resources. In the next 10 years, their goal is to put $200 million into various ministries in the Middle East and North Africa. So they gather together to hear what God is doing. And they bring in people that they're supporting from the front lines. And very interesting to hear just right from people what's going on. I mean, you hear things like in Iran... It's the fastest growing church in the world right now. That's unbelievable for us to think about that. You you sit there and you go, that's not what I see on the news. It doesn't matter what you see on the news. God is doing things way beyond what the news wants us to know. And God's doing amazing things. But as they all gave reports, it's almost like they were were given a cue card of exactly what to report. Because what they were doing is giving a report on What's being effective? Because these men want to put their money exactly where there's the most impact. So what's being effective? What are their challenges? And what do they anticipate is going to be happening in the years ahead? Without fail, when people stood up, they said, and I heard these words over and over, three things were really 
part of the, the most impact in advancing the gospel around the world. Technology. Technology is huge. Technology has all its downfalls, but technology is what is advancing the gospel in these hard-to-reach places. The second thing is the Jesus film. I mean, what in the world? Who would have ever thought when that film was made back in the Dark Ages that it would still be translated, overdubbed into different languages? It is still one of the most effective tools that God is using to advance the gospel. The third thing, and here's where Esther comes in, Bible translation. Putting the Bible into the words of people is by far one of the most effective ways of advancing the gospel. So when we give, and we give to people like Esther, um, and, the, and even the O'Harans and uh, the Floyds, I mean, we, we are advancing the gospel in the world. And so that's exciting. Did I ask you to turn to Genesis 14? That's where we are, Genesis 14. I've titled the message, Living Confidently in Uncertain Days. So just think about the world in which we live. We're studying the life of Abram right now, going through the book of Genesis. And there's a lot of things that happen in his life. There's a lot of things that's happening in your life and my life as well. And so the subtitle you can see is Revisioning Our Lives. As, as we watch Abram and his, the events of his life unfold, and especially as we come to Genesis 14, my prayer is that we would revision our lives Consider the last words of Jesus. It's very simple, isn't it? All authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the ends of the age. That's the one thing. That has been entrusted to all of us. We can say it a lot of different ways, mission, vision, and all these things. All the churches can have their own little mantra. That's the bottom line. It's Matthew 28, verse 19. Go make disciples. This past summer, I was in Ghana, and I was invited to be a part of the Ghana Initiative. And me and a team went over there, and we were going to train pastors in Muslim evangelism and apologetics. Ghana is a Christian-majority nation. And they want to, the initiative is to take the gospel to every Muslim in Ghana and others who don't, do not know Jesus so that they can hear the good news of Jesus. And they're not done when they get to the uttermost parts of Ghana. They want to go to all the nations around them, surrounded by many Muslim-majority nations, and they want them to hear about Jesus as well. Pastor Bonza is the one who had been organizing this. And at the end of the meeting, we had a big dinner together where we wanted to celebrate. And then all of a sudden, the mood turned and it got very sober. And Pastor Bonza stood up and he began to point his finger. I mean, he was serious about what he was about to say. And he explained why this initiative got started and why his heart was so burdened. And he told us this story. He said, every time I go back to my village in Ghana, I walk past the graves of five German missionaries. He says, when I see those graves of those five German missionaries, I'm reminded that many years ago they came to Ghana and they led my great-grandfather to the Lord, who led my grandfather to the Lord, who led my father to the Lord, who led me to the Lord. He said, they came to Ghana and they gave their blood so that Jesus could be known. And he continued to wag that finger, looking each one of us in the eye. 
And he said, I want you to know that I am willing to give my blood too so that everyone in Ghana and these nations around us will hear the good news of Jesus Christ. I mean, wow. That was a sober moment. Now you think about that. Is, is that extreme? Is that radical? Is that the mountaintop experience? He'll get over it at some point in time? Or is that the kind of conversations we ought to be having out in the lobby? Or out by the coffee and donuts? Is that the kind of conversations that we ought to be having in our marriages, in, in our families, and in the people we hang out with? Is it radical or should this be our normal? You see, Pastor Bonza had decided that he wasn't just going to say or sing songs that I've got my hands in the plow, I'm not looking back. He wants to live it. The one thing that's been entrusted to us, what does it mean for us to be devoted to that one thing, to live for that one thing? What does it mean to pour our lives and to take serious the words of Jesus, go into all the world and preach the gospel? We're in the life of Abraham as we go through the book of Genesis and we see his struggles, the ups and downs of what it means to be faithful to God's call on his life. And as we embrace this story, as we engage this story this morning, I want us to think about God's call on our life. What does it mean for us? I'm sure we have degrees of faithlessness and faithfulness in this room, but let's revision our lives together. Let's read this passage and think about what it is that God might want to teach us Genesis chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. In the, in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariot, king of Elisar, Ketelamar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Saddam, and Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shanab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Ketelamar. But in the 13th year, they rebelled. In the 14th year, Ketelamar and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Raphaim and the Ashtaroth Karnaim and the Zuzim and Ham and Imim and Shavakariathim and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to Enmishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in the Hezazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out and they joined battle in the battle of Sedim with Ketelamar, the king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariot, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sedim was full of bitumen pits or tar pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Aner. These were allies with Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. 
Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the de- defeat of Kedalaramar, the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out with him at the valley of Shaveh, that is king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I've made Abram rich. I'll take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anner, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. This story is quite interesting. And there's three things that we want to look at from it today. You can see in your bulletin the three points. What is the story of Genesis 14? How would Israel hear this story? And then how should we hear this story? You've got to remember that when this story is written, Moses is the one who's putting together the book of Genesis. This is written for Israel as the audience. And there's a reason they're being given this story. But this story has also been preserved for us. And so what is it that the Lord would want us to get out of this story. So first point is, what is the story of Genesis 14? We have three scenes in this particular story that I want to look at. The first one is Abram's amazingly good life is interrupted again. I mean, Abram is under the blessing of the Lord, and we're going to watch a lot of things that happen in his life, but there's going to be quite a few interruptions along the way. And so we see right off the bat, verses 1 through 3, there's going to be this war. There are, first of all, in verse 1, it gives us a bunch of names of kings that we stumble over and don't know how to read. They're listed so many times in this passage. But this is a powerful alliance of Eastern kings. And I want us to understand, so this is, would be more what the Middle East or the ancient Near East would look like. And you see these kings up there. Um, you think about the Mediterranean Sea and Israel being right next to that. And then all these kings are up here. This is where a lot of the world powers have come from. Babylon, Assyria, a lot of things you read about in the Old Testament. that The powers are going to come from this particular area. But I want you to understand in the modern day map, this is the, the territory that we're talking about. So it would be in these particular countries. And so you can see it's quite expansive, uh, the amount of space that these kings are occupying and they're alliancing together. But when you do an overlay of the United States of America, it just gives you a sense of, well, really how, how big of a territory this is that we're actually looking at. And that will be important because we want to consider that in just a moment as well. But the naming of these kings, which means nothing to us, we just laugh at the names and say, I'm never going to name my kid that. The naming of these kings, no doubt, for Israel probably stirred something up. I mean, that's why they're being mentioned. It wasn't just the powerful alliance in the East. These names are being mentioned because there was probably some history. They would recognize these names. And that's what's going to make the eventual point of this story where Abram actually defeats this alliance all that more spectacular and amazing. This is a strong alliance. We aren't told how large the number is. We know that Abram has 318 trained men along with some of his allies. We'll talk about that in just a moment. 
We aren't told how long, how large this army is, but what we get to see in the story is how powerful they are. That's the point that's going to be made. Not only do they own all that territory up there, not only are they going to take on the, Valley, the King, Jordan Valley kings, but we're going to see that they're going to conquer a lot of territory. So we see immediately these kings made war in verse 2. And then we have a listing of these other kings that are the Jordan Valley kings. And you can see the, the, the place names where we think these particular cities were located. And again, you can see that they've got some kind of alliance there as well. But let's think about, again, in terms, see the big red circle, then that really small red circle. That's what we're talking about. Eastern Alliance, Jordan Valley Kings. When again, you think about an overlay with the United States of America, I mean, Eastern Alliance Kings, Jordan Valley Kings. I want you to see that because I want you to recognize it's not just the number of kings. We're talking about the size of the kingdom that is here. And as you go through this story, you want to realize, uh uh-oh, we're in trouble. This is going to be bad, the way this story is going to unfold, or is it? And so the problem is found in verse 4. This right here in verse 2 is the first mention of war in the Bible. But in verse 4, we realize there's been war before because these Jordan Valley kings are in subjection to the Eastern Alliance. And so somewhere along the line, those alliance kings have come down here and they've taken over this particular territory. So we know there's probably been wars before. But we we see the problem in verse 4. These Jordan Valley kings paid tribute for 12 years. They kept pumping money up to the Eastern Alliance king so there would be peace. And then in the 13th year, they decided, hey, we're done with that. Why are we sending money up to them? And then it tells us in the 14th year, Ketileamor said, all right, we've got to go down there and we've got to restore order to our kingdom. Now, what the story then begins to unfold for us is we're going to see them flex their military muscle. Their number one concern is the Jordan Valley Kings, but that's not all they're going to focus on. What we're going to find is they're going to go down to that little territory, but as they move their way down, they're going to knock off all these other little territories. And you can see that the big circle right there represents the Jordan Valley Kings. The the Eastern Alliance Kings are going to come down and they're going to wrap around and they're just knocking off territory by territory by territory. Again, how big is this army? We don't know. But you begin to see how powerful they are. They are expanding their kingdom. And it's just almost jaw-dropping that the Jordan Valley Kings would even think about going out to engage in battle with them, Uh, but they do. And you see that even when you go out to this area today, there's a warning about these sinkholes that are out there. The Jordan Valley Kings no doubt would know about this, but they go out to that particular valley and they take them on and they're the ones that actually get trapped in that. In other words, they are up against a powerful force a powerful force. They lose the war. But for our story, that's not the important part. The important part is actually verse 12. Here's the point. They also took Lot. Lot, Abram's nephew. They've got this special relationship. You can go back to chapter 11 and verse 27. And we see there that Lot's father was Haran. And Haran, eventually in chapter 28, he dies. And so Lot's father, uh, grandfather, Terah, takes him in. And then we see that 
Terah dies in chapter 11, verse 32. And then in chapter 12, verse 4, now Lot is with Abram. And they take Lot. Now remember the promises to Abram. Abram, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. And so that is being brought into this story. Now, one of Abram's family is now in big trouble. What will Abraham do now? Lot's made his choices. We saw that last week. He and Abram, the herdsmen are having some problems. They resolve it. Lot goes his way. Abram goes his. And it tells us that Lot pitched his tent even close to Sodom. He's chosen his path. He's going to face these consequences. But what's Abram going to do? Even though Lot has made his choices and he's facing his consequences, even so, this isn't a, a direct assault on God's purposes and God's plans to bless Abram. This Eastern alliance, I don't care how powerful they are, I don't care how much they're flexing their military muscle, this is a direct assault on what God's plans are to bless Abram. Those who violate Abram's family, in this particular case, Lot, they will face the consequences of that. So what's Abram going to do? In scene two, we're going to see a test of Abram's growing faith. Now, we've already seen a number of tests for Abram. I mean, God's promised to make him into a great nation. His wife's barren. That story is going to continue to unfold for us. We've seen a famine came into land. We didn't make a point of that in the message. Um, but I think when that famine was there, should he have gone down to Egypt even in the first place? If God's going to bless him, certainly God can bless him in a land where there's a famine. But no, Abram goes down to Egypt. He gets in all kind of trouble down there, ends up lying. And we, we have all these tests of faith. And now we have this war. We've got kings who are um, taking advantage of people. Kings who are overthrowing people. Greedy, taking what's not theirs. All these things that are taking place. And we see in this particular scene right here, up to this point, the story's made it clear. The Eastern Alliance kings... This is a force to be reckoned with, probably the international power of the day. In this particular scene, Abram is going to rise to the occasion, but he's going to rise to the occasion with his 318 fighting men. That doesn't sound like good odds. Now, he's got Mamre, he's got Eskold, he's got Aner, who's close by. They're allies with him. We know down in verse 24 that they get to take the spoil that belongs to them. So no doubt they came and they had some men that they threw in. It's not even worth adding to the number. The point is, this is overwhelming odds. And Abram is walking into trouble. This is a David and Goliath story. The big bad bully, the international power of the day is coming down and Abram's being brought into this story. It brings up an important point. He's right over there in Mamre. Remember, they went their own separate ways. And so how's he gonna get involved in this whole thing at this point? But this just is stuff that's in his life. It's an important theological principle for us. As God is working out his plans and purposes, he's doing so in the context of a fallen world. And so as we think about the one thing that's been entrusted to us, going to all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing them, teaching them, as we think about that one thing, as we are carrying that out in this world, there is no doubt we're going to have stuff 
that's going to get in the way of that. Down in Florida right now, hurricane stuff is there, but it doesn't change the call on their life. Down in Mexico City, earthquake, that's stuff. That doesn't change the call of God on their life. Over in India, the massive flooding that's taking place, that's stuff. Doesn't change the call of God on the believers who live there. Sub-Saharan desert, all the drought and the lack of food, that's stuff. But it doesn't stop what God wants to do. My brother was a missionary in Dominica. The church that he helped raise and the, the Bible school that he helped build is now destroyed. That's stuff. But it doesn't stop the call of God on the lives of the believers down there. So Abram's been up against this stuff. This kind of stuff happens in the world. It happens in your life, in my life, but God's going to work through it all. And so many of you, and even in my life, we're up against normal life stuff, stuff that can distract us. Some of it we bring on ourselves. Some of it just happens to us. Maybe it's a combination of both. And we can get tired, can't we? We can get tired just trying to stay alive. We can get tired just trying to make it to the next day. We can be just worn out by normal life stuff. And we can get distracted from our main purpose in living. In living out, bringing about God's plans and God's purposes in this world. And we've been learning about Abram. Stuff is happening to him. And sometimes he's faithless. And sometimes he's faithful. But it's always in the context of stuff that's happening Abram needs to remain faithful, and so do we. We can't lose sight of what it is that God has called us to. Abram can't lose sight of what it is that God has called him to. And so in verses 15 and 16, we see he does. He does remain faithful. He's got his hands through the plow, the plow that God has given him of his life, and he's sticking to it, and he's moving forward. He routes those bullies, and he restores order to the land. We see that he goes, somehow this king or this alliance of kings has gone around Mamre. They went right by him. Maybe that's how the fugitive got away and got to Abram. They were close by. Maybe he saw the tents of Abram. Maybe Abram sitting out in front of his tent watching this alliance go by and all these fugitives, maybe wondering what was going on. Fugitive comes over and lets Abram know the army keeps moving forward up towards Dan. And then Abram pulls together his 318 fighting men and he goes after them. And it says that he pursued them even north of Damascus. He routed them and he restored order. We see here that Abram was faithful. But more importantly, God was. God is the one who's carrying out his plans and purposes in this world. He's simply asking Abram to live by faith and engage it and hold on to it, not let go of it. And Abram does. And so we, we see even more evidence of Abram's growing faith. Not only does he seize it and go after these people and restore that order and rescue his family, but we see evidence of Abram's growing faith. Now, next week, we're going to spend more time with Melchizedek. But I just want us to see just real quick, there's a contrast of two kings here that really reveals Abram's growing faith. We've got the king of Salem on one hand. He, he comes to Abram and he offers him a blessing. And he's the, he blesses Abram. Abram receives that blessing, even blesses him back. Those who bless Abram will be blessed. And so Melchizedek is blessed in this process. God is the one who's to be honored in this life. This is a beautiful worship scene after the battle. But then we have the king of Sodom come out. He's, he's not about worship. He, he wants to offer a bargain to Abram. 
which Abram rejects. And we don't know where this happened, but verses 22 to 24 is what Abram holds on to. He says, I've lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal thong from you, strap, or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I've made Abram rich. Abram says, that's not going to happen. And Abram in this moment is holding on to a promise that God has given him. Abram, I'm going to bless you. Through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. I'm promising you this. And Abram looks King Salem in the eye and says, I don't need your things. And he honors God most high, possessor of heaven and earth in this particular moment. His trust is in the Lord. Abram Abram has struggled up to this point. We're not done with his life yet. He's going to struggle some more in his life, but we are going to see an increasing faith in this man who wants to keep his hands on the plow that God has given him. He's fully engaged. He's living that life right now. God's plans, God's purposes. He's after that. Now, as we just step back from the story at this point, there there are certain points that are becoming clear. Number one, remember you got this Eastern Alliance Kings, then you got the Jordan Valley Kings, and then Abram's just a point. That little point right there has become an international power. That little point by the Oaks of Mamre, that one person, Abram, has become an international power. Why? Because God's purposes are being worked out through him. The second thing that we see in this story is Abraham's faith is growing. He's given us something to watch. In Hebrews 11, it's going to talk about that great cloud of witnesses, and Abram's one of those people. We're watching this. This is part of that great cloud of witness for us. And then thirdly, we're also seeing those who bless Abram, they truly will be blessed. Mamre and and Eskel and Anner partner with him, they're allies, and they receive the spoils from the war. You partner with Abram, and you're partnering with the right guy. It's like when you walk onto the playground for a pickup game of basketball, and you see the man. I want to be on your team. I want that blessing that comes with you being 6'7", 250. It's one of those kind of scenes. When you partner with Abram, you are going to be one who receives blessing. And then we also see just ever so subtly that the king of Salem, a Canaanite king, is already being the recipient of blessings. Through Abram, all the nations of the world, including the Canaanites, will be blessed. And we already see that going forward. But let's just think real quick about how would Israel hear the story of Genesis 14? What would be it for them? Now remember, Moses is the one who's compiling all of this and they're on their way out of Egypt and now they're getting ready to hit the wilderness. At what point in time was this story written? Was this written when the first generation was looking towards the land before they rebelled and had to wander for 40 years? Or are they in that 40-year wandering and now it's the second generation that has that charge? How are they going to hear the story? You see, Abram's got the baton and he's passed it on. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, it's gone to the nation of Israel. Now they're the ones who are carrying out God's plans and God's purposes in this world. Will they be faithful to carrying out God's plans and God's purposes? So as they hear this story, I think they are faced with something like this. When they encounter opposition, 
to God's work as they seek to walk obediently to his call on their lives. They've got the baton now. They can move forward with confidence that God will fulfill his promises to them. So it doesn't matter what they were facing. Were they facing the promised land with, we were like grasshoppers in their sights and they were like giants. Well, when they hear this story, it's to encourage them. Oh, let me tell you about the day when Abram was up against the Eastern Alliance kings with his 318 trained men and they came down and just blew out every nation around. And then word got to Abram. And with God on his side, he engaged what God has called him to do and he brought back Lot and put those kings back in their rightful place. So Israel, as you look at the promised land, they may look like giants to you, but you've got God on your side. God has given you that land. Step forward, go for it. You see, that's how Israel would hear this story. Stuff is gonna happen to them too. But they've gotta continue to engage God's work, God's plans, God's promises. But for us this morning, how should we hear this story? The baton, Abram's passed it on, got to Israel, and they've passed it on. And Jesus picked that up and passed it on to the disciples. And that baton keeps on going. And that baton's been passed on to us today. And that baton bears the words of Jesus, go therefore into all the nations and preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always into the ends of the world. That is emblazoned on that baton that has been passed to us. It's very simple. When we think about for us, as we carry out God's call on our lives, we can face opposition to his work, his plans and his purposes in this world with confidence in his sustaining grace and ultimate victory. We aren't promised immediate victory like Abram and Israel was. We're we're promised ultimate victory. We know that that day is coming and we're gonna have our stuff too. And God says, I'm gonna give you sustaining grace. Whatever it is that you encounter, whatever it is that you're up against, my sustaining grace is gonna be there for you so that you can keep your hands to the plow and not look back, so that you can continue to move forward faithfully. Let's consider the the encouragement of Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Look at those words in yellow. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The author of Hebrews, after laying out all this history, he says, now with this great cloud of witnesses, including Abraham, let us, church, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. What is our race? Again, I just want to focus in on Matthew 28, 19. We can say it 100,000 different ways. But that is our race. That is God's plans. That is God's purposes for our lives today that La Mirada would know about Jesus. California would know about Jesus. The United States of America would know about Jesus. The uttermost parts of the world would know about Jesus. That's our race. Grace Evangelical Free Church of La Mirada, have we grabbed that baton? And are we running that race? That's the question for us today. What opposes the running of this race? What gets in the way of the running of this race? 
Why is it that the race can be so clear to us and we might be so ineffective? What is it that gets in the way? It could be persecution. Being in Berlin and hearing the, the stories from the front line with missionaries who were there and, and just, I mean, I have, a, I have a book that I brought back that was part of art therapy where kids, the Yazidis in northern Iraq, who's just been bombarded and blown up all over the place. And they wrote, they drew, drew pictures and it's just a book of pictures and, and they're gross. I mean, you've got little kids drawing pictures and they're holding a head up with blood dripping down, with a sword, with blood dripping down, with a lifeless body on the floor. 76% of the children in Iraq have had a, a family member die because of war. And the trauma that's there, it's unbelievable. There's one story where the ISIS went through and they destroyed everything Christian. The only thing that left behind that was Christian was any image of Jesus was left behind decapitated. That's the point they wanted to make. Is persecution? Well, I don't think we're facing that. In the United States of America, what is it? What's our opposition? Well, let's go back to Hebrews 12, 1 to 3. Before it says, let us run with endurance, the author says, listen, before we can do that, we've got to lay aside every weight and the sin which can cling so closely to us. Perhaps that's more of what we need to look at in our own lives. I mean, what are these things? When you think about every weight, I, I want to call those just simply the good and legitimate. Maybe even God's blessings to us. We've been given so much, so many good things, so many blessings, but they can become weights for us, relationships, jobs, exercise, the resources that we have, money, hobbies, video games, TV, internet, iPhones, checking email, whatever it might be, technology, all of it can be weights that keep us from running the race. We also have sins that cling so closely, rebellion, which consumes our time and energy. You ever stop and think about how much the sins you battle with consume your time and energies? Maybe you struggle with lustful thoughts. You ever think about how much time you spend daydreaming lustful thoughts? You ever think about battles that we might have in relationships? How much time and energy that saps from us? You ever think about bitterness? And how bitterness can just ruminate in our mind. Oh, I hate that person. And it's just there for days and hours on end, just sapping our energy, taking our time. Sins that cling so closely. As I was working through this probably three weeks ago, the Lord began to break down me as I began to think through some things in my life. Something I've been battling with for a while is... When I get up in the morning and before I get to work or before I begin my day, I want to do two things. I want to spend time with the Lord and I want to exercise. Those two things. And I began to notice that because of just getting ready for the day and I needed to go get exercise, that my time with the Lord began to shrink down a little bit. Just I began to push through that. So I could get the exercise, got to go exercise, got to go exercise. And I began to pay attention to why is there this extreme push that I have to get my exercise in? It's because I eat too much. Bottom line, is food good? Yeah, it's good. 
Can it become a weight? Yeah, when you eat too much, then what do you got to do? Calories in, you got to burn them off. I got to go exercise, got to go exercise, got to go exercise. Food and exercise, two good things, were beginning to rob Dave Talley of his vitality in Jesus Christ. That's a weight. And the author of Hebrews says that we need to lay that aside because there's something urgent that we've been called to do. There is God's plans and God's purposes in this world. But then we've got those sins which cling so closely, this rebellious living, the continuous anger, the bitterness, the greed, the lust, whatever it might be. And it's just consuming our time and our energies. The author of Hebrews says, that's got to go. That's got to go. We've got to get our hearts and lives so in line with Jesus Christ so that we are grasping that plow and we are living for his purposes in this world. Let those things go. You've got to get those things out of the way so that we can run that race. And the author of Hebrews says, I want to encourage you with this. You've got a great cloud of witnesses. And I want to remind you today that Genesis 14 is one of those great cloud of witnesses for us. It's one of those great cloud of witnesses. But he goes on in chapter 12, and he says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured that cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the the Father. Jesus is also an example for us. And I believe that God is calling us today, in light of this story right here, to revision our lives, to revision our lives. And so I want us to think, Abram, we finally see he's at a place where he's engaging what God has for him, God's plans and God's purposes. Pastor Bonza in Ghana, he's at that place where he's engaging what God has for him, even if it means his life. And I want to ask us, Grace Evangelical Free Church of La Mirada, are we engaging that? Are we running that race? Or are there weights and sins which cling so closely that are distracting us from what God would have us to do? Where are you with that? Here's the promise from Genesis 14. As, you, as we carry out God's call in our lives, We can face opposition. We can face these weights. We can face these sins which cling so closely. This opposition to his work, his plans, and his purposes in this world with confidence in his sustaining grace and his ultimate victory. So Kenny's going to come and he's going to lead us in a song. And this is what I want you to think about. What, What are those weights for you? What are those sins which might be clinging so closely. And I love symbolism. And I'm going to call you this morning. While we have some silent prayer, while we're singing, don't let this moment go by. I'm going to call you this morning to consider coming down forward and just kneeling up front. And with your hands, just cups, say, Lord, here's my weight. I've been thinking about that song, all the vain things that charm me most. I sacrificed them to the Lord. All the vain things that charm me most. What's that weight? Lord, Lord, this is a weight. This is in the way of me living out your plans and your purposes. 
Lord, this is the sin which is clinging so closely to me and it's in the way of me living out your plans and your purposes and I want to claim your sustaining grace for me. I want to claim your forgiveness. I want to claim your strength. Lord, your sustaining grace that you will help me to engage this battle. So let's pray. Lord, our desire from the time we began this service today was to exalt you. Our desire at the beginning of this sermon was that we would exalt you. Our desire as we received these words and as we go our separate ways was to exalt you. And so, Lord, we pray right now, whatever business you want to do in us, please, Lord, don't let us leave here today without doing that business. Lord, help us right now to bring those weights to you, to bring that sin which clings so closely to us. So just pray privately and then Kenny will lead us.